Are you ready to take your leadership and your organization to the next level and beyond? Your competitors will be there before you know it. Today's leaders must perpetually innovate, evolve, and grow faster than the competition. Welcome to Innovative Leaders Driving Thriving Organizations with Maureen Metcalf. In the next hour, you'll meet innovative leaders who have become successful at the helm of some of the most respected organizations in the world. And you can become the next big success story. Now, here is your host, Maureen Metcalf. Hi, welcome to Innovative Leaders Driving Thriving Organizations. I'm your host, Maureen Metcalf. I'm the founder and CEO of Metcalf & Associates. I work with leaders and their organizations to identify the trends that will most likely disrupt their businesses and develop business strategies and business and leadership practices to leverage those trends to create sustainable business and strategic advantage. I'm a regular contributor to Forbes and the lead author on an award-winning book series focusing on innovating how you lead and transforming your organization. I'm also an adjunct faculty member in universities in the U.S. and Germany. Welcome to Cynthia Cherry, who is the president and CEO of the International Leadership Association. We are broadcasting live from Brussels at the annual leadership conference. Thank you, Maureen, for being here with us here in Brussels. I'm so excited about the series of keynote speakers that we are able to present and that will give a timeless message around our topic and theme of leadership in turbulent times. And I'm very pleased with our conference chair, Jort Volkers from Deloitte University, the Dean of Deloitte University and his team who helped us along with the ILA staff to present this global conference in Brussels, Belgium in 2017. Welcome, Jorit Volkers. Thank you for taking time to be with us. And for our listeners, the outcome of this session specifically, Jorit is the head of Deloitte University EMEA, and they are a partner in this conference with the International Leadership Association, and he's running the Deloitte University. So we would like for him to talk about his role in ILA and why, and you only did a keynote a couple years ago. And exactly, and that's where it all happened, basically. And now you're the center of the universe, so, so we'll talk about that, and then we'll talk <laughs> about what are you doing at Deloitte University. For those people who are aspiring to build their leadership, understanding that one of our top professional services firms invests so heavily in leadership should be encouraging and hopeful for us at this moment in history. Okay, first I would like to talk a bit why I'm here. Mm-hmm. And that started basically, as we said, three years ago when I did the keynote speech. I did that with Professor Gil Hickman, which is, and that's why she's so special for me, which is a, a professor in leadership, but not only on one theory. What she did is made in her book, she made an overview of all the theories that there are on leadership. So that uh, for me was so interesting and of course in that first time I started also to be participant in some of the workshops mm-hmm. and uh, and some of the presentations that were going on so that des- then I decided well I, I'll go back next year and that was last year in Atlanta 
um, because in Deloitte leadership is very important also in our uh, Deloitte University and I will speak a bit later about that and what I found out in Atlanta was that there is so much out there so much theory so much good articles books about leadership of which a lot of is 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 it's usable uh, even in a, a big professional service firm like Deloitte So then um, I was asked by the board to uh, be a temporary board member and organize or help organizing uh, the conference in Brussels. And also uh, they asked me, well, what should be the title of the conference? And uh, we had quite serious bombing attacks here and instability in Europe. So um, the title became uh, Leading in Turbulent Times. Because a lot of leadership theories also what we see here in the conference is about leadership in more stable situations. Mm -hmm. So when there is not too much wrong. Of course, there is also, uh, there are workshops and theories about crisis management, but le really leadership in turbulent times is something as a specific topic. So that's why um, we asked uh, big leaders which we consider as big leaders as keynote speakers mm -hmm. and ask them, please reflect a bit on what it is to be a leader in turbulent times. So we had uh, Mr. Van Rompuy, who was the first president of the European Union, and he spoke about his leadership effectiveness in uh, turbulent times, which he had a lot of them in, in Europe. Mm. We had uh, David Petraeus, who talked, of course, about the crisis that he had in Afghanistan, Iraq, uh, Mali, Haiti, and how he operated that. And, of course, today we will have Jeroen van der Veer, who is the chairman of uh, Shell, uh, or was the, uh, the CEO of Shell. And he will also talk about uh, his leadership in turbulent times. And for me, it would be very interesting, and we can only do that afterwards, to compare the three and their different styles and how they manage the crises in their companies or countries or even in Europe and see what they needed to be successful in doing that. And we now already can see, because we had two, uh, Van Rompuy and, uh, and Petraeus, which were quite different because you could see Van Rompuy manages crises by dialogue, mm -hmm. while, of course, Petraeus, as a military leader, leads much more through goal setting and achieving goals with the means that he has. Mm -hmm. So much more directive leadership. So what you already could see, and I'm very interested what Jeroen van der Veer, who is of course not from uh, the military and not from the civil service, but from a company, how he did it in his crisis. So we will hear that later on. And, and hopefully we'll hear, we will be interviewing him and hopefully we'll have a wrap-up that does exactly that evaluation. Well, <laughs> I don't know whatever we have the time for it, but uh, we certainly have to... Have to yeah, 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 we certainly have to do that and try to, to figure that out. So, um, for me, it, it was a, a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to help organizing this, um, this conference and, and be able to select even one of the, the, the main topic of the conference and help selecting that. So that was very nice. So you haven't been drafted for next year? No. <laughs> next year I will be in attendance. <laughs> 
and it will be easy listening. Yeah. <laughs> so, so let's shift then to, well, one, I, I do hope that we do a wrap-up that compares and contrasts those styles, and I think we have that schedule. So let's move to Deloitte University. Well, uh, Deloitte University is basically, it's a corporate university, so uh-huh. it's only for uh, Deloitte people, uh, although in the United States we also have a, a university where it's already also opened up for clients, and, and here in EMEA we run one uh-huh. program also for clients. But that is also a bit in self-interest, because we do that for CFOs, uh-huh. and uh, it's um, for, for the top Fortune 500 uh-huh. uh, CFOs. And after the program, which is a successful program, we ask them whatever they want to join our industry programs and work with us on uh, on the trainings that we do. And that works very well, by the way. <laughs> you know, coming out of Accenture, we partnered with our clients. Yeah, that's and what that created the best thought. Leadership. Yeah, and that is what we do in, especially in our industry trainings, the the trainings that we do there in mm-hmm. I think now twenty seven different industries are co-created with clients mm-hmm. and also the trainings that we do there are simulations but the main interest for us is of course um, and that's why we are here and that's why we are sponsoring this year's uh, conference mm-hmm. is leadership because here in EMEA we did interviews with uh, all the CEOs of the 27 member firms now a bit less because we had some mergers last year mm-hmm. But we had interviews with 27 uh, CEOs, but also a lot of uh, business leaders. And they said, what we lack is real leadership in, uh, inside Deloitte. There is, of course, leadership, but it's not at all levels where we would like to have it at all levels. Mm-hmm. So what we did then is we started, and, and basically that started after the keynote speech that I had with uh, Professor Gil Hickman, we started with, uh, the le- as we call it, the leadership project. And in that leadership project, we are designing a leadership journey for people as soon as they enter the firm until they retire. So it's not, and we base that not on one theory or one leadership framework, but we are working, and that's why it's so interesting for us here, we are working with all the theories that are applicable. In the workshops, we have done a lot of work to see what is specific on leadership with Deloitte. Mm-hmm. And out of the, the workshops came uh, what we call a narrative, which is about yourself, what do you need as a person, what is about the other, and what is connecting the two. What we did is find words around it, and then divided that we, defin- uh, we made definitions of what we call the boxes and after that we looked what do you need as a leadership skill at what uh, at a, a certain level in Deloitte so what do you need if you enter the firm on leadership skills mm-hmm. what do you need on when you are a manager a senior manager a director a partner or a senior manager so basically the conveyor belt from lead exactly. self to lead exactly. a large enterprise yes a large complicated exactly. international exactly. enterprise exactly and what we found out that some things are the same no matter whatever you are mm-hmm. entering the firm or your senior partner mm-hmm. like ethics like ethics but also like listening voicing standing up being mm-hmm. frank and honest also, what is in our firm very important is the, and, and it was also here on the conference, is purpose, okay. uh, purposeful leadership, mm-hmm. because that's something we think should be all over the place, because if you really want to be 
a company as we want to be that have uh, a shared purpose, but also an individual purpose that really makes the difference, then you have to be aware of that at all levels. Mm-hmm. So that's also one of the examples that we work on at all levels. So each participant in the university then identifies their own personal purpose? Yes. Uh, and they have to, uh, and we hope that they will identify them also on the, the bigger purpose of Deloitte. And of course that is very broadly formulated, it's to make an impact that matters, but you have to color that um, on an on a effective way. Certainly, well, in my books, that's the first chapter of exercises is what's my personal purpose? Yeah. What are my values? And then I ask a series of reflection questions that look at myself. How does that cause me to behave? But then how do I fit within the organization? Exactly. And do the systems and processes that are in place enforce or, or mitigate who I think I am and what I stand for? So how do I align with the organization? And if I'm not aligned as I've just entered, I should maybe not be here. Exactly. That's that's exactly how we look at it. If you if you don't yeah. want to align or can't align, then better find another job because then you don't fit into the organization. And you'll be less satisfied, less engaged. And exactly. Okay. And that will also have an effect on other people that mm-hmm. work for us. So what we are now doing is trying to put all the work that we've done in the workshops in uh, designing trainings and in that trainings, and that could be small snippets of trainings, that could be formal training, that could be classroom training, it could be uh, digital learning, it could mm-hmm. be everything. We, we are m- designing now modules that we can stick to technical programs, but also to industry programs, to, um, to business advisory programs. So that ultimately you can see if you work for us, you will be developed also as a leader at all levels. And Which is brilliant as we talk about people come in presumably with extremely high technical skills. Yes, most of them. Yeah. And often people who have invested their time building technical skills have invested all of their time doing that and haven't invested an equal amount of time becoming a better leader. And if the organization doesn't tell them they should, they often don't. Exactly. And then ultimately you will have a very improductive organization. I coach some of them. <laughs> well, and, and because the organizations are starting to recognize that brilliant physicians, as an example, and researchers, they're curing cancer, but now they're leading organizations that cure cancer. There's an additional set of skills that needs to be added. Yeah, because we are not a firm with professional managers. Mm-hmm. Everybody who works for us and is in leadership positions is basically a practitioner mm-hmm. at a different stage in his career. And now it was more a coincidence that mm-hmm. you had a person who could lead and then even a lot of times not very effective. So that's why we are now emphasizing that leadership on all levels is very important and we start training people around it. And then, as I uh, said before, we will not use one framework, one uh, theory. Uh, We will use what is applicable to us. Mm -hmm. And what is applicable, I assume, is a broad range depending on the industry, the geography. And also what we want is not something that is fixed, so we are not going to fix it and stabilize it but it has to be agile so that new insights I had this conference again I was in some workshops and I, I got some very good insights especially on uh, on 
uh, future leadership, mm -hmm. which was a great lecture that we had around it, which is for us of key importance because mm -hmm. all our teams, almost all our teams work virtually. Actually, I want to find out who that is offline because that's something I want to share with listeners. Uh, my sister works for Microsoft and is leading virtual teams and she, she said, yeah, share more. Share yeah. the latest, latest research with me. It's, uh, it's, in, in fact, if you listen to the lecture, it's very simple uh, or it seems very simple. Mm -hmm. um, you have to find out what cultural background people have, what, mm -hmm. uh, what their personal situation is. Mm -hmm. You have to imply, implement how to resolve conflicts. All those kind of very simple things you need to put in place. But the first and most important thing is getting to know each other. And if you don't spend time there, it will be an ineffective or a less effective team. Which has been a theme throughout the entire conference for me. I've heard consistently, in times of complexity, personal relationships need to be built and maintained, even if we never see one another face-to-face -face again. If I have a call with you, I'll know who you are, and we will have shared some experience of getting to know one another. Where we are now currently looking at, and we would like to see also some scientific proof of that, mm -hmm. is that we think, but it's an assumption, that it makes sense if you have a team working virtually to at least get them together one time, mm -hmm. uh, face to face, mm -hmm. without interference of, uh, of computers and telephones. Mm -hmm. And we think that teams will be more effective if they have been together. Again, that, those are the comments I've heard this week through the interview series, but I don't know that I could point to any specific research. No, I, I didn't find it yet, but okay. I hope to find it and, okay. and, uh, and then, then work with it. But because, as I said, it's for us, it's crucial. All our teams work global and virtual. Mm -hmm. You know, one of the things I want to just comment on, because my whole work is built around innovating how we lead. So not just I went to a leadership class in, you know, year 2000, and now I'm set, but that as the world changes, how I lead must change. And that's part of the intent of you sponsoring the exactly. conference, yeah. me getting to share the information. For instance, a leader now has to Twitter, otherwise he can't be a leader anymore. Is that true? <laughs> At least, tweet? no, absolutely not. No, I'm referring to Mr. Trump. Yeah. And we're not going to go there. No, 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 no let's not go there. <laughs> but leaders need to communicate it in a way that is exactly that is effective. effective. Yeah, let's keep let's Please, keep yeah, it there. Stop it at that. <laughs> Well, but the definition of leading has changed, even in the last couple of years, probably since I saw you last. The conference seems different this year, in part maybe because of your organizing, but in part because the world context has changed with populism, with new presidents and prime ministers, with, with Brexit, a lot of changes. It's very interesting to look at, uh, I'm, I completely agree with you, the, the world changed every time and again, and that has its effect on leadership, but this is also on political leadership. What happens in the, in the companies, and perhaps also in the public sector, is that the, the possibility of all the data, of all the, um, the means that we have at our disposal are changing the way how you lead very dramatically. In the, the lecture about the virtual leadership, they asked us, how many uh, teams do you think work virtually? And how do you think it was 10 years ago? And that was astonishing because 10 years ago it was only 22% and now it's 85%. 
So imagine what an effect that has on the way you lead. Well, think about when you and I joined the workforce. We wrote things on paper. typewriters, paper. <laughs> we, there was an inbox that was a physical thing, right? There was a mail system that we that we got actual client correspondence through. Yeah, that was uh, was just uh, the postman brought the correspondence. <laughs> then we did, when happened. I started working, <laughs> there were no computers. I, I had a telex. <laughs> I started shortly after that, and, <laughs> but at that point, I, we were using mainframes. Right? My, I entered data into a mainframe, and the next morning, I would go get reports that were printed on a, you know, big sheets. And if there was a mistake, you'd run it overnight again. So the response time was days for an analysis, not three seconds. And so, of course, happy days. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I carried a heavy audit bag back then. And so because of the speed of information, the way we lead globally has to change. Absolutely. And you see that now already changing because when email happened, and it's the same, by the way, with WhatsApp and all those kind of things, mm -hmm. SMS, you can name it, Twitter. Mm -hmm. What we see is that we are now coming out of an era where there was always an instant reply. If you don't answer mm -hmm. an email immediately, you're almost a criminal. <laughs> and you see now that that starts to change. There are companies mm -hmm. now who close down their email systems in the weekends because we all also found out that you need to have some reflection time. Mm -hmm. And that is also one of the things that was very important in this whole conference this year. You need time to reflect, to be quiet, to listen, and to reflect on what you are doing. The synthesis, integration, not just thinking about the stuff, but thinking about who am I exactly. in the context of the stuff. Exactly. That means also that you shouldn't be always disturbed by your devices. So I don't know how you do it, but I sometimes, for in the weekends, I try to put it off. I don't use it. I have one day a week that I don't use it. Okay. Um, but I also, I have a reflection practice I walk a lot. Oddly, um, I walk at night, so even the visual of nature isn't as distracting. Mm. But if I sit down, I often fall asleep. So <laughs> I have to keep moving. Well, one of the themes that I also attended uh, in one of the, the workshops was about meditation. They oh, really? said, yes, well, there's proof for everything, yeah. but they said, well, if you start the day or med uh, do meditation at least for 10, 15, 20 minutes a day, it will make you more effective. And that's physiologically. Yes. Our DNA changes, our frontal lobe builds, the, the neural network expands. There's a lot of research that says our thinking gets better. Exactly. And so that is, for me, that was a new insight that it has been proven from the physiological side. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I did it already for a long time. Every morning when I wake up, I first spend 15, 20 minutes mm -hmm. really reflecting on what I will do that day, what were the problems of the day before, and how do they look after a night's sleep, because that's basically <laughs> different. different. <laughs> they look different. So, And now I heard that it's actually proven that it's effective. And I think we also are going to take that up into our leadership trainings, that we are going to start learning people how to do it. I teach my MBA students to do it. And it's interesting the questions they have, because some will say it's against my religion, 
so contextualizing it that it's not a religious practice. Exactly. It, it's weightlifting for the brain. Exactly. I, it, it doesn't do any good to go to the gym and have a fabulous body and a flabby brain. So there are ways to contextualize it, I think. Yeah, and that's not only for the mind, but also for the body, of course. We are taking much more uh -huh. uh, care of our bodies, which makes us also more effective. And I attended also a few workshops around that theme. So for me, it was a great thing and a lot of uh, workshops, a lot of uh, topics in the conference I can use for my leadership journey within Deloitte University. So for me, it has been very beneficial as a person, but also as an organization. So as we wrap up, hopefully some people from Deloitte University will be listening to you. Do you have, and also the many people from ILA and beyond who weren't maybe able to listen to the, attend the conference, but would like to hear a closing message from you as the conference organizer. Well, I would almost say join Deloitte and be part of our leadership journey, but that's not an... <laughs> <laughs> Become a client of Deloitte. Oh, no, well, of, yeah, of course, we, we, we like that also. Now, my message would be, have your eyes and ears wide open to all the changes in community, what's happening in our society, but also to all the research that has been done and try to apply what's applicable for you in your day-to-day -day life. And hopefully then you will become a better leader. Thank you. Thank you so much, Jorat, for your leadership in creating an amazing conference and your leadership in Deloitte, because I know what an important firm you guys are. And it is only with good leadership in this time that you will continue to add the value that is possible. Thank you very much. You're welcome. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Metcalf & Associates is your trusted partner to create perpetual innovation and evolution in your leadership and business. Are you ready to innovate and evolve? Since its inception, Metcalf & Associates has been dedicated to helping leaders evolve their leadership mindset and skills and create organizations that can continually innovate to achieve results in a highly competitive and rapidly changing environment. We help leaders, management teams, and organizations identify and create the perpetual capacity to identify and implement transformative solutions necessary to meet their mission and create strategic advantage. Metcalf & Associates offers proven results backed by leading-edge research and a global network of accomplished consultants and thought leaders. Visit Metcalf-Associates.com. Maureen and her associates are ready to discuss your needs and tailor a solution to meet your goals. Move forward with Metcalf & Associates. Visit Metcalf-Associates.com today. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America.
You are listening to Innovative Leaders Driving Thriving Organizations. To reach Maureen Metcalf or her guest today, please call 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. Or send an email to info at metcalf-associates.com. Now, back to this week's program. Welcome. This is Innovative Leaders Driving Thriving Organizations. And today I am delighted that our guest is George Papandreou. So Delighted to be with you, Maureen. Thank you. One more time. <laughs> One more time. Yeah, this is the encore, which I hope there were many more of. Yes, why not? So as the Prime Minister of Greece from 2009 to 2011, George A. Papandreou understands leading in turbulent times, which is the theme of this conference. As a public servant for many years, he served among other posts as Minister for National Education and Religious Affairs and as Minister of Foreign Affairs before following in his father's and grandfather's footsteps to become Greece's Prime Minister. His election to office after the devastation of the global financial crisis in 2007 and 2008 came with the mandate to increase transparency and reduce corruption in Greece's government while humanizing globalization and its economic impacts on Greek citizens. Challenged by the time and global financial markets, he made a difficult decision to implement austerity programs and cuts that appeased the Eurozone and the pressures of the global economy. For his work in 2010 of making the best of Greece's worst year, Foreign Policy Magazine named him a top 100 global thinker and today he received the rarely given International Leadership Association Distinguished Leaders Award. So, very honored and humbled. Thank you for all that you have done. So, let's just start with tell us a little bit about this journey. And what I remember from our last conversation is you were born in the U.S. That's right. I was born in St. Paul, Minnesota. And My father and mother were married there, and uh, I was born there, but then they soon took off for Berkeley, California, where my father took on the Department of Economics, and so I grew up the first years of my life in, uh, in California, in Berkeley. But um, a turbulent youth also, because my father then decided to, after many trips to Greece, to go back. So we were going back and forth, and at that time, of course, it was um, to travel to Greece was a very different thing. We took the car to New York, and then from there on a boat two weeks to, to Greece. And uh, so it was, uh, it was a major endeavor to, to travel there. Now it's a few hours. And of course it was quite a big change for me from one country to another. To, and then of course Greece was going through a, a period of trying to bring democracy. And uh, it, um, we ended up unluckily with a dictatorship with my father and grandfather in jail and finally in exile. Which Part is how you journey. ended up in the U.S. That's how I, well, we came back to the U.S., okay. but, I, but actually, before I came back and studied in college in the U.S., I was, uh, we were a refugee as a family in uh, Sweden okay. and uh, then in Canada. Okay. So we moved a lot around the world. You have been militantly committed to democracy. Yes. So say a little bit more about what that means, because democracy, I think, in different countries means different things, and why the personal commitment? Well, living under a dictatorship and living a sense that you can feel that our societies have potential, 
and of course when they're ruled by authoritarian leaders, militaries, dictatorships, it's not only the brutality of oppression, a lack of freedom of speech, torture, lack of rule of law. Uh, you could be hauled into a, a jail for nothing. I remember growing up during those years in the dictatorship, before we were exiled, the um, insanity, not only the brutality, but also the insanity of, of, of dictators. So if we had sideburns, they would tell us to shave them off because they were, they were like the Beatles. Or if we were wearing be- <laughs> were bell bottoms, they would tear our bell bottoms. And if a woman was wearing a miniskirt, they would take down the hem. These were things that were the dictatorship would do. I mean, this. These I were, laugh, but this, this isn't funny when yeah, it's happening to you. Yeah, when it's happening to you. And of course, those were the somewhat more benign things mm-hmm, because mm-hmm. you could be pulled in and tortured, and the torture was terrible. I mean, it was, it was really, really. Uh, just give you one case because these cases were taken to the um, European Court of Human Rights and Greece was actually expelled from the so-called Council of Europe then during the dictatorship. Uh, I remember as a kid, when one, of the, one of the stories, the woman that was pregnant, they tied her feet on a rope and pulled her up on a helicopter and would dip her into the sea with this helicopter as she was pregnant. She lost her baby, of course. So these are, these are just things that they would, would, would do to, to intimidate and, of course, to extract certain information. So uh, living through a dictatorship, you have this really deep sense of injustice and, and also that there's such a crime that there's so, so much potential in your society, which is being lost, of course. Mm-hmm. And of course I had seen, you know, don't forget that Europe, today's Europe, around 50% of the population lived in some form of dictatorship, 50% of the population that's alive today. So Central Europe, Eastern Europe, mm-hmm. Southern Europe, we had, there were many dictatorships and, and authoritarian regimes. So Europe today is, is um, very much a beacon of democracy. Uh, we're still, still striving to make sure that it's, it's, that it's working. Sometimes we equate democracy simply with voting mm-hmm. uh, and electing a representative. Well, that is not really the concept of democracy from the ancient times. And uh, um, the real meaning of democracy was you could control your fate. You had the right, you had the possibility, which was an amazing revelation at the time, in ancient times, because mm-hmm. people would basically had, were, were fatalistic. If you were in a, if the king would say something, that would, his, his word would stand. If it was mm-hmm. a tyrant or a, you were in a hierarchy in a society or a high priest, that was the, the, the order that you did not question. All of a sudden, they, these people in the small community called Athens and so many other small cities mm-hmm. said, well, you know, actually, we can take our fate into our own hands. We can actually change things. We can actually imagine a different world. We don't have to accept this. Mm-hmm. And so that's how politics was invented, basically. I mean, there's a revelation, yeah. Okay, now, politics comes from the word citizen, being a good citizen. And democracy was there to make sure that we don't have tyrants and we make sure that people do have the voice. So my question would be today in our modern democracy, do people feel that they have a voice? And not just on Facebook, but I mean a real voice, an influential mm-hmm. one. Are we asking our citizens? Are they participating? Are there all kinds of institutions which are not just just voting once every four years, but are there all kinds of institutions where their interests are, are being expressed, uh, where they can actually shape 
their community, that can shape the future. And I think what people are feeling today is that even though there's immense power, there's a lot of money around, there's uh, great technology, people are starting to feel somewhat powerless about what's happening in the world. Things are globalizing, this turbulent world which we're talking about here, yeah. makes people feel fear, uh, insecurity, and um, sense of powerlessness. So I think we need to rethink how democracy today is not simply electing uh, representatives, but it's a whole culture of participation. And that's what I feel is the way we will be able to solve the problems. And we as politicians cannot solve the problems alone. You, we have this idea that you elect a leader, he or she is going to deliver. Yes, that we have to do that also, but the types of problems we have today are so complex and they need so much innovation and also understanding of people who are being going to be affected by one solution or another, that they actually participate and see, find themselves in these solutions. They actually come with ideas, because sometimes, very often, I may have a good idea, but there are so many other people that have better ideas than I do, and I want their they want their views, and of course their interests also, which have to be represented. So we need to have a much more complex idea of what democracy is, but it's the basic idea is that make sure that people feel that they can identify with a system that respects them, that, that empowers them, that gives them a voice, and that they can actually uh, not only share their future, but also shape their future. Which seems so important as so many people are feeling disenfranchised. Yes. That we return to the original views of democracy. Yes, and I think that we are seeing the phenomenon like the so-called Trump phenomenon. Mm -hmm. I'm not talking about him personally, but the sort of as a phenomenon. It's not mm -hmm. only in the United States, it's in other parts of the world also. As people who feel disenfranchised, and then when they go to the polls, they say, I'm going to just going to vote against the system because mm -hmm. it's not working for me. Yeah. Now, is devices red divisive rhetoric and hate and uh, racism and uh, um, you know ultra nationalism is that going to solve our problems? No, no. it's a dead end. Uh, in a world where problems are global, we need cooperation. In a world where our societies are more diverse, we need that spirit of shared societies. And when we do that, we're much more effective and we're much more secure. So I think that. Um, Sometimes our choices, and that's what happens when you only have a choice every once every four years. You just say, okay, I, to hell with it, I'm going to do this. Mm -hmm. But if you do have daily participation, or if not daily, but often, and you're given that mm -hmm. capacity, you take on a much more responsibility, but you also feel responsible for the outcome, and you can also shape your society much better. So let's move from politics to you as a leader. So you just received this award for Lifetime Distinguished Accomplishments. We have leaders, a lot of them hopefully, listening to this interview. What would you like the next era of leaders to be thinking about at this point in time in history around the world? I think what's the, the, the most important now, because we have as I said earlier, huge capacity. Uh, there is a lot of power that we can uh, wield in the world. Not that leaders 
who are elected are necessarily that powerful because the power comes from different. It could be from corporations. It could yeah. be from communications. It could be in finance. It could be military. It could be in many different ways. But how we use this huge capacity we've created, this huge power we've created, is a moral issue. Okay. It's not a technical issue. It's not a an, an application which we're going to mm-hmm. find which is going to solve all our problems. Mm-hmm. Those are good, and we all enjoy our apps and so on. Maybe over-consuming <laughs> uh, our time and uh, and uh, and our uh, daily life. But um, if we don't realize that this this new power, this continually growing power we are creating, has to be used in a way that it will serve the public good. It will serve a moral purpose. Mm-hmm. And it will serve to it should serve to empower, to protect, to make people feel secure, uh, to make people respected and and feel that they are worth, mm-hmm. uh, that there's that there's a worthiness in their lives and they have a purpose. If we don't do that, then this will this power will be mis misused. It will be abused, and I fear that the abuse of power, mm-hmm. and we've seen it in different ways. It could be in different. It could be. The financial system selling uh, stock, which was triple uh, A supposedly, and it was it, w- it was trash, mm-hmm. uh, and people were were duped into buying. Uh, it uh, it is or money in politics being able to buy up uh, representatives or lobby and uh, completely, mm-hmm. uh, you know, or certain technologies which we don't know where they will go. I mean, we are now talking about robotics that will replace much in labor. Mm-hmm. Uh, what will we do with society? What will we do with an aging society where we have more people, hopefully more healthy people, but older, uh, which, we, which, how are they going to be part of our society? So we are creating a society with new potential, mm-hmm. but if we don't use it in a just and in a uh, one which serves everyone, mm-hmm. public good. We will see cleavages. We will see uh, pain. We will see um, hatred. We will see anger, and some politicians will want to exploit that. So I think leaders have to be able to say, "Let's sit down and see how we use all this potential, um, and how we deal with all these." And that's where we, I think, leaders need to, first of all, think of their own moral purpose, their mm-hmm. own what they want to represent in life and what their responsibilities are. And that's true of business leaders, political leaders, yes. non-profit leaders. That's right. This is I, think, I think this is general. Uh, when you have been given a responsibility, which also is uh, a power, smaller, more, mm-hmm. it is uh, to, f- and also it's to think about what, y- what your purpose is, what you are doing. And mm-hmm. not, not, I would say, not get enamored by this power. But make sure that you are in control yourself and not let it lead you, but you lead it uh, towards a moral purpose. So this morning when you were speaking, you talked about this idea of building bridges and, and what are real divides versus what are kind of humanly constructed divides. And for most of our listeners will not have been in the room as you were speaking this morning. So can you say a little bit more about what is... What is a humanly constructed divide? Yeah, well, I gave an example of what uh, I've, I experienced, and um, it was um, 
a time when on the island of Cyprus, which is a divided island, the northern part has uh, been occupied by the Turkish army and the southern part so is Greek Cypriot, the northern Turkish Cypriots living there. It used to be an, a united island where people would live together. But I won't get into the history. Uh, I was trying to, with my Turkish counterpart, so we have Greece, Turkey, and then Cyprus, which is divided, uh, trying to see how we could get together, mm -hmm. a rapprochement. And we were, as I said earlier, trying to let people show their potential. You know? And so there was a people's diplomacy. People started meeting each other and doing things together, mm -hmm. women to women, business to business, football teams, music, and so on, art. And uh, then what happened on the island is the teachers' union on both sides, the Greek Cypriots on the one and the Turkish Cypriots on the other, started talking with each other. And all of a sudden, somebody, something occurred. The teachers' union called me up from Cyprus, and they said, you know, we have this young boy who has leukemia, mm -hmm. and we don't know, we can't find anybody to match uh, his bone marrow to, for a transplant. Uh, and he said, we talked to the Turkish Cypriots, and we're thinking, can we search in the Turkish Cypriot side? Maybe there's a Turkish Cypriot boy that has mm -hmm. a match. But that would need permission from the Turkish side. So I called up my uh, counterpart in Turkey, and he said, this is a good idea, let's do it. So they did search amongst the schools, and they found a boy, a Turkish Cypriot, that shared similar DNA and was compatible. And there was a transplant, a marrow transplant, from a Turkish Cypriot boy to a Greek Cypriot boy. Now what does that tell me? First of all, the society itself, when you give them the hope, they will take these initiatives, and there's a lot of potential. But it also gives you, gives me the, the fact that we are so common human beings. Mm -hmm. We share DNAs, there's very little difference really. But we construct differences, sometimes construct our conflicts, we construct our societies. That's in our minds. It's in our minds, it's in our economies, it's in our societies, and we need a sense of community. But we don't need a sense of community which is against somebody else. Mm -hmm. We can create communities which are with each other. So if we, can, if we have constructed conflicts, we can reconstruct societies to share values and to share our societies and be able to live together. So this is, we, we don't have to accept that it's inevitable that we will have these differences and these conflicts. I want to get to one point I didn't mention in my speech, which I think is important. Let's say, take the European Union. Mm -hmm. Well, we had all these conflicts. Germans, the French, the Holocaust, uh, Greece was under Nazi occupation, there were one million Greeks up in the mountains, guerrilla fighters, uh, terrible wars, war after war. And uh, people might say, well, it's inevitable, these people are just going to be fighting. But what we did is we said, no, we will construct, we can construct something different. And if it's the will that's there, we'll construct it based on certain values. No conflict, peaceful resolution of, mm -hmm. of differences, respect human rights, respect minority rights, respect borders. Let's share wealth, let's help for prosperity, democracy. And on these values, we have been able to say, it's not inevitable that we go to war. We have constructed a society where we can be in peace. So it is the will, the political will, of our peoples and our leaders 
that can reconstruct societies in a, in a positive way. It's not always easy, and in conflict it's not always easy, but if you have that will, there will be a way, and I think this is what we need. The more we have a rhetoric of war, the more we have a rhetoric of you know, bashing <coughs> the other side, the more we try to stereotype and um, the more that demonizing. demonizing, we will be constructing uh, mm-hmm. uh, a, a present or a future conflict or a continual conflict. So I think this is where the hope is that we have shown that, and there are small examples like in Cyprus, which I mentioned, or there are big examples like the European Union, that we can construct a better future ourselves. Again, for listeners who don't understand as much about the European Union, yeah. 26 member nations coming together in the 70s, as you said, under uh, nations are admitted, I believe, based on their values. Yes, well, it's, uh, it began after the Second World War when we were uh, in uh, a devastated continent. And, of course, Germany, France, the UK, um, all of the countries were devastated and, and so many lives uh, lost. Uh, and so much destruction. So we said, the then founding fathers of this European Union, they said, well, let us see if we can work together and become interdependent. Let's put it that way, that was the Uh idea. Uh So that we are so interdependent that we don't want to fight with each other, we don't want a conflict. So it began with a steel and coal cooperation. So they were steel and coal, don't forget, those were the basic industries for military. Rebuild. But first of all, it was for the military. Okay. So if you have them together, it won't be one military against the other because it will be oh. a cooperation. Okay. But it's also to rebuild. And then it developed into um, the agricultural cooperation okay. and then, of course, a common market and then a common union based on these values. But that was the basic thing. It wasn't on an ethnicity. It wasn't like I'm German or Greek or French or British or whatever. Mm-hmm. It is we share these common values. We can be different. So it began with just a few. Greece came in when we were 12. Then there were 15. Finally, we're 20... Six. 27, actually. 27, now. Wow. 28. Okay. But the UK yeah. has uh, decided to opt out, unluckily. But don't need to get into that. But what that means is that uh, we have been able to construct uh, a, a different type of society built built on peace, and that's that I think is the the very big importance, the huge importance of, of the European Union, because it gives you a sense of security. You have your identity. We each have our special identities, mm-hmm. but they're not against each other; they're with each other. We have our special, uh, as Greeks, you know, good and bad, and Germans good and bad, mm-hmm. you know. But we've been able to come together on these basis of these values. I think it's so important as a model for interdependence. Yes. And one can argue efficiency and all that stuff, and, and that's not the point here, but that the system continues to emerge and flex and flow, and other than Brexit, which I realize is significant, all of the member nations are, are cohering even during significant financial upheaval. That's right. And in Greece, for example, we, we decided, the Greek people decided, that even though there were lots of sacrifices, and we mm-hmm. had, there were major sacrifices, maybe more than needed, but there were major sacrifices in cutting wages and pensions and these austerity measures to make mm-hmm. sure that 
our budget was responsible and uh, that we could also convince the markets, but also our fellow member states in the European Union mm-hmm. that we would be a responsible member, we, we wanted to stay in. We could have said, no, we don't want that. We'll go out and we'll do our own thing. No, we said, we want to stay in. We'll follow the rules. So that sense of community is quite strong. And I think that's, 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 the, that's why Europe is important, because it is a major peace project. But if you think about the world as a whole, we are very interdependent, more and more so. And no one country is, is, is isolated. So let's look, how did the European Union work? Are there things we can learn at the global level or other regions mm-hmm. where we can actually work together? So let's say the African Union now. There's an African Union, not like the European Union, but there's the ASEAN, which is the, an Asian sort of counterpart of, of, of the European Union. There's Latin American cooperation like Mercosur and so on. There are different uh, forms of cooperation at the regional level. And maybe at the global level we can see how we become more cooperative in, in based on certain values. So in this globalizing world, if we take the European example, how are we going to begin to share values across the planet, across borders, where we can say, okay, we have our differences, we have our different identities, we have our different traditions, but there's a core there that is, is what humanity agrees with on these values, and that keeps us working and cooperating together rather than in conflict. Thank you. I think that's a brilliant note to end on, the idea that the EU is a model for what is possible for cooperation across a segment of yeah, the so planet. Yes, we, and we do have our problems, and it's not easy. It's an, it's an experiment. And a we're, marriage isn't easy, and that's only two. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> so think about this complicated marriage uh-huh. of 28. But it is, it is a possible model, and I think we should see it as that. But thank you, Maureen. Thank you, George. It's such an honor for me to get to have this conversation with you and to share it with our listeners. Thank you. Thank you for joining us live in Brussels at the International Leadership Association Conference. In these turbulent times, investing time and energy to refresh and evolve your leadership skills becomes a critical success driver. I challenge each of us to consider the impact effective leadership makes on our lives and on the lives of the organizations we lead and the people that those organizations impact. Imagine what each of us can do as we work together to solve these big problems that impact us, together we can create a world that is more peaceful, more just, and creates more opportunities for everyone to thrive.
Thank you again for joining us this week. Please tune in for another edition of Innovative Leaders Driving Thriving Organizations with Maureen Metcalf next Tuesday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. We hope you'll join us then. Drive and thrive and have a great week.